what I have done and what a number of my colleagues in the business have done is something a little bit sort of a subset of that. Because importing is you go overseas, you buy something, you import it. But this is more of a curatorial process. We're really curators and one is imposing, if you will, one's own aesthetic. And I think that's a very important thing, and I think one of the things that I that some of the younger people maybe getting into this side of the business miss is they 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 try and be all things to all people, and I th don't think that's 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 really the for me it's very very important to know who one is, what what your identity is, carve out your own taste, respect it, stay true to that. Today on another bottle down. We get a glimpse into the life, career, and philosophies of prominent wine importer Neil Rosenthal. I caught up with Neil at the Hotel Van Zant in Austin, Texas during a whirlwind tour of the Lone Star State, geared at educating our local wine people on his portfolio. My name is Mark Rayshap, and I'm so excited you'll be along for this wild ride. So would you say that, that across your portfolio, and indeed a portfolio it is, and um, there is a thread of a little bit of commonality to, to the wines that you select? I think there is a very strong, I mean, there's a, there is a, a, a backbone to, the, to all of my wines, whether they are 15% alcohol or 11.5% alcohol, the profile is always pretty much the same. Yeah. I buy wine for myself, and then I find other people who share my taste. And I think when I, for example, when I did a little tasting today for the staff of our new distributor here in, in Austin, um, the idea was after they get immersed in a 12 or 15 or 20 different examples of my wine, they should be able to walk out of that room getting a sense of who I am and what my taste is all about. Yeah. Because the taste, first of all, there are two fundamental elements of what I'm looking for. Right. One is this sort of sense of terroir, yes. which we can talk about at length about how to describe that because it's a word that is bandied about in the trade, which I think is abused, yeah. and I have a very, very specific idea of what that is. Uh, and it also is a sense of balance. Uh, so I have sort of a, a zen approach to my selection process because what I'm always looking for is balance. Yeah. I'd like to actually talk about both of those terms in a, in a, in a little bit, um, but. I do want to ask you if that that profile has changed through your 40 years in the business. Uh, ha, if you know, if you can kind of think back and and say, were your selections back then? I mean, a lot of the producers are still in your portfolio. So many of my producers have been with me now for 37, 38 years. My original quote discoveries are with me still to this day, and I'm very proud of that fact. Um, and it is. Uh, it's a wonderful comfort zone for me in a lot of ways. So, so would I you don't think to answer, to sort of anticipate your question, I don't think it's changed. I, you know, it's not as if I had a conscious, I didn't write down a program for myself when I went out and said, oh, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. It, it, was a, 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 it was an instinctive move on my part. I mean, I was tasting wine, buying for my own taste, but my taste was formed over a number of years, not necessarily by wine, not necessarily I want because we, my family, I never grew up drinking wine. So I didn't have a vast background of tasting before I got into the business. This is all sort of like, you know, shoot from the hip kind of thing. Not that it was casual, yeah. but I was very confident in my own sense of taste. 
Did you have a first region that made you say, wow? Yeah, yeah. my two first great experiences are, are still the two great loves of my life in a certain way, Burgundy and the Piedmont. You know, you're drinking, If you, my first two spectacular experiences with red wine were a great Burgundy, great red Burgundy, and a great, uh, and great wine from, from the Lange region of Piedmont. Yeah. I, I love your people. What do those wines share? They, they, it's interesting to see what they share because those wines share this energy, this certain energy that they have and this certain level of acidity that is necessary to make them fully expressive. I love your Piedmont portfolio. I love your Burgundy portfolio. And, um, and I use often a lot of your Alto Piemonte producers. Right, the Alto Piemonte is just one of those great areas that deserves a lot of attention right now because it's an area that has effectively over the last hundred years, the last century, 90% of the vineyards in the Alto Piemonte have been abandoned. And now they're starting to come back. So that leads me back to, I mean, as far as your taste, seems like they haven't changed much over the course, but the industry keeps on changing and the tastes of the overall industry changes. How over this 40 years have, have you kind of battled that? Oh, that's, a great, that's a great question and a great sensitivity to what goes on. And I think one of the keys to my success, once again, is not to say that I have a consistent, unchanging right. approach or mind, but to stay loyal to one's own sense of what's worthwhile. Mm. You can't move in the direction of the market. I never buy for the market. I know I can't be dictated by somebody else's imagined taste because the market, the fads, the, the mood of the moment changes all the time. What I have done is stay true to myself, true to the things that I appreciate in wine, and we've gone through this ebb and flow. You know, there, as we say, there are mountains in the valleys, and we've traversed all of them constantly, and it's a constant procession. But you have to, my, for me, I had to maintain my integrity. The integrity of my own taste and respecting that and knowing it and getting comfortable with it. And then just continuing to look for those kind of wines. And the nice thing is I don't have to appeal to an enormous market. Because I'm buying wines that are limited availability, limited production. I don't have to have wines that appeal to an enormous sector of the marketplace. I just have to find this little group of, of followers, if you will, and it's, and it's, and it's satisfactory. But do you, it, makes, it makes the world turn for me. But you still have to think a little bit in terms of this is going to go to this customer, or, or, or do, you, do you classify folks' tastes in your no, profile? No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. If you come into the party, it's my party. <laughs> it's my party, and you're going to drink my wine, and you're going to eat my food, and that's it. And if you don't like it, then you won't stay very long. So you started at Burgundy and Piedmont. Where the did you kind of? They ever bought were in January 1980. The first ones they ever imported into the country were January 1980, and they were and they were, those two growers are still with me. The Anfosso family in Barbaresco that make wine under the name of De Forville, and uh, Luigi Ferrando and Carema in the northwestern, the last, the ultimate village in the northwestern part of Piedmont before you get to the Valle d'Aosta. Luigi is still with me to this day, 38 years together, the Anfosso family 38 years together. Those are the first purchases I made and then by 1981 I was deeply, deeply immersed in Burgundy. I will say that the uh, Ferrando family is probably one of the few Herbaluce di Caluzas that, that you can find in the Austin market here. Well, it's one of the rare Herbaluce di Calusos, actually. Yeah. There's not very much Herbaluce di Caluso that's made. Right. And the Herbaluce was the first wines of, of Herbaluce that were brought into this country. I brought in back in 1981, 82. Yeah. Yeah. 
wonderful, and there's a sparkling and a and a, and a sweet Herbaluche, version. Herbaluche, as I was saying to a few of, the, of my young friends today, uh, Herbaluche to me, it's not like it has the same taste profile, but it has a it, it's it has a similarity to Chenin Blanc, because it has enormous flexibility. If you if you harvest it when it's slightly underripe, it has a natural pétillance to it. It's almost naturally sparkling because it's very high acidity. You can make a bone dry white wine, and yet it's the kind of grape that you can let it. Leave it on the on the on the vine a long, long time, and we can harvest and make a pasito, and the harvest date is usually sometime around Christmas. So you can make the ultimate sweet wines, and you can make bone dry wines, and you can make sparkly wine out of Herbaluche, much like you can do in Chenin Blanc in the areas of Ouvray or the Cote de Leon. So your portfolio is very heavily old world, you know, French. Uh, it's all old world. That's where I'm comfortable. That's why I like to spend my time over there. It's where I feel best. Yeah. I did try early on. I mean, my first times going out buying wine to build my own portfolio were in California back in the 70s. And it just wasn't hitting the flavor profile that no, you actually, liked? I thought the 70s were a great time to be active in California. I still have wines from the 70s, California wines that I bought in the 70s, 74s and 75s, 76s. Through that, there was a beautiful period of 75, 76, 77. They're basically drought years. The wines were spectacular. And when I look at those wines today, and they're still alive 40 years later, believe me, they are 40 years later, and I look at those labels... And they were all 12.2% alcohol, 12.5% alcohol. They weren't these 14, 15% alcohol monster wines. And that's the secret to their longevity. Yeah. But California at that time was, you know, they really didn't know what they were doing. So that was, that was beautiful because everything was so, you talk about the natural wine movement, that was really, really natural. I mean, it was the, it was the smoke and dope time, a time of life, you know, and it was wonderful. It was a great time to be in California at that time. But I, I, I shortly, I, I understood once I got involved in Europe that, there was a certain ethic also in California that didn't marry to the old world ethic yeah. of doing business. Yeah. Can we so can we tackle the term terroir? Sure, absolutely. You know, the terroir is a word that I think is unfortunately abused. Everybody uses it. They always say they wines are terroir, but terroir for me has five fundamental elements. Three of them are physical, which is to say soil, climate, and grape type. And that number three element, grape is determined by numbers one and two. Soil and climate determine which are the right grapes to plant in a particular region. That's why you don't want to plant Syrah and Piedmont to ruin your great Nebbiolo, which some people have done for, for other reasons, for commercial reasons. So I think those are the three physical elements that have to be understood, and that's your sense of place. They're literally a geography to the wine. But in addition, there's a cultural element. That's number four for me, it's a cultural element which means what goes into the history of a particular area. So that if you're making wine in Kornos, for example, I think it's very, very important that when you are harvesting your grapes, you don't destem, because that's the great tradition of Kornos. The greatest Kornos I've been had the privilege to, to drink and enjoy are wines that are, are grapes of Syrah that have not been destemmed, for example. The aging process, the élevage for me, the best way to do it in Cordas is to do these things in demi mui which are the 600, 500, 600 liter barrels rather than the small Burgundian barrels or Bordeaux barrels of 225 liters. I think that's a very, very important thing. Or even slightly larger foudre. I think that's important for the process. Uh, that's part of the culture and the history of the Appalachian. And that's a fourth element. And that's a lot more complicated to it. Is you have to understand the history. You have to uh, do a lot of tasting. You have to have references for years and years and years and years and years to understand what, how everything evolved and why things were done in a certain way. 
And the fifth element is the human element, is the pure human element, so that each wine, each wine has its own terroir, but then you've got the grower's name on that label. And that grower also has that touch. Why is it that I can work with two growers who share, basically share a vineyard site? They're working side by side. Their practices essentially are exactly the same. And yet, magically, one wine is different than the other. And that's putting that human fingerprint on those wines or in an even more interesting way in a lot of ways an even more subtle way it can be the terroir of the particular cave so you're down in a particular cave in burgundy or in piedmont underground you've got a particular mold growing on the walls that's where these wines are aged for one year two years three years sometimes four or five years that bacteria that that mood if you will is finding its way into the wine and is captured in that wine so it's what helps differentiate and makes the beauty. And that's why I only work with estate bottled wine. I don't work with wines from negociants. I don't work with wines made at a cooperative. I don't, that's banned from my portfolio. Not because they can't be good wine, but because I think to get the essence, the purity, the most pure expression of terroir, you have to have that isolated area where you know exactly where those grapes come every year and the cellar from which the wines uh, ultimately are, are rendered. So can a region uh, change and kind of evolve. I mean, you know, and, and you lived through through this as an importer uh, in, in in Piedmont, in Barolo, and Barbaresco when folks were started moving to to smaller barrels. Uh, can you Disaster. comment on that? Yeah. Disaster for me. Disaster. I hated it from the get go. I never bought into it. Uh, we had we had really uh, active discussions during that period with our growers. Uh, for example, the Anfosso family in Barbaresco never even thought, of, well, they did a little experiment with, with their Barbera d'Asti, and I said, you know, if you're gonna, I'm not interested in buying that wine. Not interested in buying that wine. Oh, but that's what the Mark wants. I said, I'm not interested. One of the great mistakes they ever made, I, always, I say this every year when I, after 38 years, I said to them, because we started originally when I was there, my first purchase, I was buying this wonderful Grignolino d'Asti from their own vineyards. They have vineyards in Castagnolo Lance, not just in Barbaresco, but another 25 minutes further east in the Asti Appalachian, and they made this beautiful Grignolino d'Asti. And they gave it up that one year I show up, is no longer there. I said, what happened? Oh, you know, the market that nobody wants to buy Grignolino anymore. They're not interested anymore. So we ripped it out and we planted Chardonnay. Yeah. I said, what did you do? What a disaster. Commercially brilliant idea. We sell a thousand cases of Chardonnay, Piemonte Chardonnay every year from Dave Reveal. Lovely wine. Is it a true wine of terroir for me? No, mm -hmm. it's not. It's one of the concessions I make to the family, the commerce, okay, I, I admit it, I'm culpable, you know, put me in handcuffs and send me away. I've done it on one or two occasions. But I yearn for that Grignolino, but they didn't do the Grignolino anymore because the Grignolino is a very deceptive wine. A very pale color, and everybody's thinking it'd be a very light, sort of rosé kind of wine. But Grignolino has a lot of tannin to it. So you've got this sort of conflict from the visual to actual the textural quality in the mouth. And so these are the things that I think that, that help me. I don't know where we're going with this, but I think we've lost the point here a little bit. But, but the idea is this is the great expression of terroir, and it's the things that I, I look for and search for all the time. And so we, I have seen, so what I'm saying, I think we get back to the point where we've seen these transitions that have made, this sort of modernizing or this more commercial side of the wine business creep into all these sacred areas for me. And it's tough to accept. Yeah. And I don't accept it. I don't accept it in my portfolio. I will never accept it in my portfolio. 
I think we also see folks kind of come back around maybe after some time of experimenting. Look, I've had young growers and every, every generation has the right to make its own mistake and put its own stamp on it on its wine. And so, for example, when I go through succession, it's always the most delicate part of the whole process. I now have so long in the tooth mark that I'm working with third generation in some places. So I see it every time a new generation comes in and the young person, whether it's man or woman, they want to put their identity. They want to establish themselves as the rightful proprietor. So we see these transitions. They do their little experiments. And as time goes on, they usually come back to what their grandfather did, you know, because it's always, I always say when I leave, because I see everybody you got twice a year and I, and I say, you know, I come back in six months. I want you to just do me a favor during the next six months. Go downstairs into the cellar and drink a cup of one or two or three bottles that your grandfather made when there was no air conditioning and there was no stainless steel. How did he make these great wines? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how he made the great wines. <laughs> so, you know, you brought up a really interesting point with the, with the Grignolino because I see the wine world really diversifying as well in terms of, yes, of course, you're going to have these bastions of history, Barolo, Barbaresco, etc. But I think folks are are yearning, and especially in this market, they want the weird, the wild, the wacky. And do you see, and in that sense, if you knew who to sell that Grignolino to, I mean, th that production would be no problem, and, and it would be an asset. It wouldn't be a problem for me. It wouldn't be a problem for me because we have that client base. We have that clientele. It's made for that. I don't consider those wines weird or wacky. They are rare, and as a result, they sort of seem like they're outliers, but those are the great traditional wines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my feeling is the classics always have a value. The classic, you go to look at any museum, the classic works always, always are the foundation of what we build our sense of beauty on. Right, right. You know? So I think this is true with wine, and, and to me those wines are still classic. The interesting point that I think you may be referring to is that the younger people coming into our, the wine trade, uh, unfortunately, uh, have not, do not have uh, the access that I had when I was a kid in this business to some of the classic wines. Yeah. It's very expensive to buy Burgundy now. Yeah. Very expensive to buy classified growth Bordeaux now. And so their frame of reference is a little bit different. You know, I grew up in an era when you didn't drink, nobody drank Bordeaux if it was not 10 years old. You know, and there were only a handful of great Burgundy estates available, and so you you were, you were able to buy these things, and you finally you found wines that were four, five, six, ten, twelve, fifteen years old. I remember growing up in this business with these wonderful spanas from the from the Alto Piemonte made by Valana in nineteen in the nineteen seventies. I was selling nineteen fifty four Spana Campi Raudi single vineyard spanas that were sensational wines, twenty twenty five years old, and they cost nothing. And that was a privilege that I had that I think the people coming into the trade right now have not been able to capture because everything is so expensive or rare or not available anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think that as a result, they feel that in order to make a statement about who they are and their special place in the marketplace, that's where you see this sort of obsession now with natural wine and you see this, you know, no sulfur thing and you see people looking for wines from Appalachians that never existed before, you know, the, the interesting little wine from the Auvergne in, in France. Let me tell you something, when I was crisscrossing France back in the 70s and 80s, there were no auto routes, there was certainly no GPS, you traveled around a little car with a map in your lap trying to find places, and I crisscrossed France, and you go through the Auvergne, you would never even dream of having vineyards there, it was too cold. 
you know, and that's a place that for me can't make great wine. It's a curiosity. It's fun. It's pleasant. I'm not denigrating the wine at all, but I think those are one of the, those are the areas where some of the young people in the business can have access and create something new and different and be excited about things because they're the originators of these kinds of wines. And so I think in a lot of ways the irony for me is that when I was a revolutionary back in the 70s, now people see us as the establishment. I think that there, there's also something to be said. I mean, do you think that, that there are still, I guess I'm brought back to Alto Piemonte. If you didn't start working with some of these producers, I mean, they might still be a little bit more obscure. And so are there still some, some historic regions that maybe haven't really been, had their pioneers? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. There's always something new. Not, it's never new. It's new to you. Or yeah. me, or whoever is going out there. But you, ne you never, it's like, did Columbus discover America? It was already there. He stumbled upon it. You know, and those are things that have happened to me. And I think it's wrong to use the word discovery. But I think if you keep looking, there's plenty of ways. You, have to, you can even keep going back to really the classic areas and you're finding new things happening. For example, change of generation in a domain that may have not been producing really excellent wine for 20 or 30 years, all of a sudden the next generation comes in and realizes the problems that are there or realizing they weren't doing the right work in the vineyard, you better be alert to that stuff because if you're satisfied with the status quo, believe me, you've lost the game. Yeah. Status yeah. quo is death. Right. And so you've got to keep pushing ahead and you have to keep being curious and you have to keep looking and looking and, 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 and searching. Yeah. And I think when, if you lose that enthusiasm, then I think it's, you should hang it up. Yeah. So Piedmont. I mean, I'm going to a place in the southern part of the Veneto in March. Somebody reached out to me. We get a lot of people reaching out to us every day. I get new requests to represent growers, and whether it be in Italy or even you know in far-flung places that I would never go to. <laughs> but I'm going to a place in the southern part of the Veneto, which is totally new to me, with a grape that I hadn't really heard about before, and uh, and seems very very exciting to me. So yeah, there's still things to find. Can you give us a preview of what we should look out for, maybe? Well, yeah, I, I'm on March 14th. I'm going to spend the whole day at, uh, at the Il Dominio di Bagnoli, but maybe I shouldn't even let this out because somebody else is going to try and beat me to it. Uh, 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 it's an estate. It's a very large estate that's only changed hands three times in the last 500 years. It was in the hands of the church up until about, um, from about 1100 to 1600. Around 1633, it was, the church gave it to one of its benefactors, I think an Austrian family, that owned it for about the next 270 years, and they sold the place. It's a 600-hectare estate, which is remarkably enormous. You know, this is an old, this is the old, this is the way, these are the old fiefdoms. Right. Yeah. And everybody who lived in the town basically served the baron. And they probably growed a, a, a lot of uh, produce. And they grow, now they grow everything. Anyway, it was sold around 1900 to a, to a very wealthy Milanese family, and that family still owns it. And they reached out to me just, you know, about six months ago, and sort of I didn't know whether it was in, that, all that interesting. They were very persistent. And finally, you know, I, I sort of conceded. I said, yes, yeah, interesting. So they sent over some samples. Now, I never buy on the basis of somebody sending me a sample, but it's... But, Oftentimes, it's, it's, it gives me a reason not to go because the wine, I can see it's really not interesting at all, so I don't bother. But this one was really intriguing. 
really, really intriguing. And the wine and the and the vineyards are all organically. It's all organic viticulture. Very fascinating with this little grape called Friularo, not Friulano, but Friularo, which is a red grape in this that's sort of special to this little area of Veneto, and it produces some. I think the potential of producing really, really interesting wine. Wow. They also produce a lot of grain, a very interesting historical grains that have been sort of that have been lost over time that people have abandoned. So that's really interesting to me. They're also producing honey, yeah. uh, which is another yeah. passion of mine. Oh, wonderful. So we'll see. So I, when I, on March 15th, you can give me a call and I'll let you know. And I will hold Neil to that and make sure to get him on the phone in March after his visit to see if the producer met expectations. <laughs> I'm sure there will be a fun story or two. Well, we need to take a short break and hear some announcements, so stay tuned. Uh, when I walked out of my law office, uh, Labor Day weekend, 1977, the idea was to go off and write the great next, the next great American novel, you know. But I had a six-month-old daughter; I had to make a living, and that's how I stumbled into the wine business. Your family had a luncheonette, and then moved. My dad had a classic pharmacy, uh, uh, which he started back in the 1930s uh, in Manhattan, in a very wealthy, the, the Upper East Side, uh, and part of that classic pharmacy was a lunch counter, and it was open from six in the morning till midnight and everything there uh, was all made fresh which I think had you know in some magical way had an impact on what I ended up doing do you carry that over I mean of course you work with a lot of family producers and um, and that is always in the back of the mind Uh, they're not all necessarily organic it's conscious mark I think it's a subconscious thing for me I think I'm most comfortable that way and I think that's one of the things that may ultimately be attributable to the whatever success I've had is where I feel that you know there's a certain comfort zone that I have not working with sort of big corporate entities because I grew up in a in a family run entrepreneurial business and sort of maybe it's in the blood you know (laughs) you wrote a book reflections of a wine merchant was did you feel that that was kind of a necessary step to get everything down and chronicle it and 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 um, you know my publisher Frost Strauss and Giroux I was flattered they came to me and asked me to write the book I had always wanted to do this but my writing career was supposed to be writing fiction and not not this kind not a and and they classify this as a memoir but it's not a memoir it's really an exploration of a certain of our culture through the prism of wine and that's how I would describe that book. I, I definitely wanted to write that book, uh, and I'm thrilled that I got the opportunity to do it. Yeah. So to me, Piedmont and, and, and Burgundy makes sense. And then Bordeaux is kind of interesting. I mean, you have, a, you have a wonderful Bordeaux portfolio, but there's been incredible changes. Can you talk briefly about yeah, Bordeaux? Bordeaux is, is a fascinating story. Uh, you know, some of the first great wines I ever had were Bordeaux wines, you know, the great classified gross. When I was drinking wine from the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s, I mean, there were some just outrageously spectacular wines. Those wines also were 122 12.3, 12.5% alcohol. <laughs> Not like it is nowadays. You know, part of it is, uh, is this sort of global warming thing, you know, the climate, climate change that's sort of having a major, major impact all across the planet, including the whole wine world. So that's something you have to be aware of. But Bordeaux is one of those areas that, that turned a corner in the 80s where the vineyards became so valuable, so expensive, 
that the small family domains could no longer buy any vineyards and they've pretty much been squeezed out and so a lot of them have sold out and this is a disappearing element and I'm talking about the major Appalachians they're all the satellite Appalachians which are nice wines but I'm talking about major Appalachians this is one of the reasons why I think our Bordeaux hate to toot my horn on this public broadcast but <laughs> it's one of the reasons why our Bordeaux is, our Bordeaux selection is special because we have all the major Appalachians we have Poyac we have Margot we have Saint Estef we have Saint Julien we have Grave we have Sauterne Saint Quartemont Saint Emilion Pomerol we have all the major major Appalachians in the hands of small family domains, sometimes as small as one hectare. Wow. Small and as one hectare, that's 2.25 acres of vineyards that are harvested basically in one day. Wow. Wow. And that's the kind of people we're working with. And that's the fascinating part where they're really doing the old times traditional buying. And do they have to, do they, do they tell you stories of getting offers from large oh, companies? Know. Well, as an example, my grower in Poyac, uh, Yannick Mirand, his family owned 14 hectare in the center of Poyac, surrounded by Mouton Rothschild, Lafitte Rothschild, and the family sold their vineyards. Yeah. And he, in a, to honor his ancestors, kept one hectare. Wow, wow. You know? What about, uh, if we can change gears quickly to, um, to Spain? It is, you know, they, 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 they moved from really, uh, you know, from, being, from making wine like they made 500 years ago all of a sudden, they transformed the entire country and went into modernism right. immediately. It was like going from El Greco to Picasso in one leap rather than <laughs> waiting 400 years to make a transition. So um, I've never, you know, I've done a lot of prospecting in Spain and I can't find stuff by and large. I'm not, I'm not criticizing the wines. Don't get me wrong. I think there's some interesting stuff coming out of there. But for me, for my taste, my own taste, very hard for me to put together a serious portfolio, portfolio of Spanish wine right now. I work with one grower in Catalonia, uh, makes an extraordinary cava in the most traditional, traditional way. Yeah. And that's sort of, to me, that's an extension of my whole work in the southern part of France, just going over the border another couple of hours and you're there. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that kava is am amazing. And that's biodynamic harvesting, organic growing, and lees contact for between 5 and 10 and 12 years. So it's serious stuff. Yeah. You're not talking about $10 kava. Right. Right. <laughs> and Switzerland is, is oh, an yeah. interesting piece. Uh, yeah. Did you start to discover Switzerland I, at a certain I part? I discovered Switzerland a long, long time ago. A long time ago because for whatever reason, when I was first making my trips over to Europe, I decided the most efficient way to go was to fly into Geneva. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been flying Swiss Air for the last 40 years, basically, <laughs> and fly into Geneva, and sometimes I fly into Zurich, but uh, because Geneva is within an hour, hour and a half, I'm in Burgundy. Yeah. Within an hour and a half, I'm in Italy. Uh, and it's a lot closer than if you're flying into Paris or you're flying into, uh, into Rome or Milan or something like that. So for me, it's, it was the most efficient way to go. And when you're driving either into France or you're driving around and you're going into Italy, you see these extraordinary vineyards in Switzerland. So I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. And in the early stages in Switzerland, it was a protected market. Uh, and they were overproducing their wines and they really weren't very quality conscious. But you could see the terroir. You could see these steeply terraced vineyards that had to be worked by hand all around Lac Lamont. And as you go up into the, uh, there were occasion times when I'd have to come back from Italy by taking the, the Grand San Bernardo Pass, and I'd go through, through the Valais in Switzerland, and you see these extraordinary vineyards. I mean, magnificent vineyards. 
And I just was always curious about it, and I would stay over in Geneva frequently or stay on the lake, uh, and then I'd experiment with the wines, and all of a sudden I could start to see a change. This was about a dozen years ago uh, because they stopped protecting the protecting the, the marketplace, and the growers started to get serious, and they started to rediscover their local grape varieties. So whereas most of the wine, white wine is made from Chasselas, and they've always had Pinot Noir and a little bit of Syrah and things like that, they started to rediscover grapes like Armenia, Umania, Cornelan, Petit Arvin, and this is fascinating stuff. They're shy-bearing varieties. They were given up because it was too hard to work. They were, they were very unreliable. They, hard, they matured late. very difficult to manage this stuff. And, you know, they've gotten really serious about it. I work with a quartet of growers in the Valais. They're producing spectacular wine. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's daunting for most people to work there because the production levels are very low. Uh, most of the wine gets sold locally. The prices are relatively high. And the Swiss franc is a very strong currency. So they're not inexpensive wines. But for me, it was just a fun thing. And I, and I, and I love doing it. And it's giving me a great deal of satisfaction. Well, Neil Rosenthal, it's been a, a real honor to have this time with you. Um, I, I'd like to end on maybe if you can give some young folks in the industry, a lot of younger industry folks kind of listen to this and the show, and um, what would you tell folks? What would be your, your recommendations, somebody who might be working retail or who wants to move into the importing realm or wants to move into the distribution realm? I mean, with your vast experience, is, is, are there things you would have maybe done differently or... Uh, yeah, what, what, what are your recommendations? Well, I don't think I would have done things differently. Uh, it was a special time of my life. It was a special era. Uh, so I don't think you can duplicate what I did. And I don't think that's what anybody should do. I don't think that's necessarily the formula to success. I think the important thing is to remain curious. Uh, but you have to determine your own identity as to what you enjoy, what are the, what style. I think some people get torn in many, many different directions. I think ultimately you have to define yourself. Mm. And once you become comfortable with yourself, yourself you're going to make the right decisions. Right. You, to get exposure to wine working in retail is a great place to start because you're going to be able to taste a lot of wine right. from all over the planet. That's a great way to start. Yeah. You know, when you're on that buying end, not easy to come from the buying end and then start going to the selling end. I can tell you that right now. That's a tough, tough transition to make, and not many people can do it. But I think that is a great way to start. You have to have a, you have to have a background, and don't be afraid to get into the classics. Worm your way, whatever you can do. Go and try some older Burgundy. Try some older Bordeaux. Get some great old Barolo on your palate. Do things like that, because those are the classics, and that's what you learn from. Learn from the classics and then build on that. Well, that was pretty cool. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, listening to some of these amazing people who have sculpted the wine landscape over the past several decades is invigorating. It also makes me question what our role will be over the upcoming decades. And whether you're in the industry or a passionate consumer, can we find a way to cut through the commercial noise and find these elements of the wine world that we are passionate about and are worth fighting for? You've been listening to Another Bottle Down, which is a production of the Illuminated Bottle and KOOP Hornsby Austin. Make sure to like the show on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.